I am grateful to John Frame for his too kind introduction. I am delighted to be sharing in this conference today the Ligonier ministry as it develops thrills me, frankly. It's so obviously a work of God and so richly a means of blessing to his people today to share in the work myself is always a joy and that's what I'm doing this afternoon. So it's good to be here and good to be talking with you about the greatest subject of all, the being, the character and the glory of our great God. It took me a long time to get into the Psalms. That was partly, at least, because the Psalms are very exuberant. And uh, I started as uh, a buttoned-up, inhibited Englishman. <laughs> as so many of us Englishmen are. But by the grace of God, I've got a little beyond that. And I've got into the Psalms, and now I love them and it's very hard for you or anyone else to get me out of them. And I would like to start this afternoon by reading to you some verses from the Psalms. Here is Psalm 86. I pick up at verse 5 and I read to verse 10. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. In the day of my trouble I will call to you, for you will answer me. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. God is good and God is great. I have just come from a lunch at which a pastor gave his testimony to how God showed himself good and great as he and his wife had to walk through the experience of having their 14-year-old daughter run down by a car and die that same night despite all that the surgeons could do. And the testimony was that God has been good and the God who was good to those dear souls is the great God who will be good to you and me too. Let me read to you from the Psalms again. It's Psalm 145 this time. Verse 3 of Psalm 145 goes like this. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness, and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. 
the Lord is good to all. It is about the greatness of our good God that I want to speak to you this afternoon. Let me introduce what I want to say by telling you of something which happened in Britain 250 years ago. The chief musician in England at that time was a German immigrant named George Frederick Handel. A friend sent him a libretto for a possible oratorio. The libretto grabbed him. He shut himself up in his study for three weeks, hardly ate anything. People wondered if he was all right. He came out at the end of those three weeks with an oratorio written. Uh, an oratorio which takes three hours to perform. His, his, his testimony afterwards to what had happened during those three weeks was, well, these were his own words, I saw heaven opened, he said. I saw the great God. That oratorio was, to my mind, one of the greatest works of art that any Christian artist has ever produced. It's the Oratorio Messiah. Now just let me test the meeting. Who knows Handel's Messiah? Oh my goodness, how few of you do. In England, which is a great deal more pagan, may I say, than the, the US, everybody knows Handel's Messiah. And here I can see only about a quarter of you do. Well, let me go on. Uh, you shall learn something about Handel's Messiah if you didn't know anything about it when you came into this meeting. The oratorio has three great climaxes. There's the Hallelujah Chorus. Now, who knows the Hallelujah Chorus? Ah, that's a bit better. That is praise to the Messiah on his throne. He shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. And there's the closing, closing chorus, which is still praise to the Savior on his throne. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wisdom and glory and honor and might. Who knows the chorus, worthy is the Lamb? Ah, not so many. Well, your lost friends, try to get to know it. You'll not regret the, you'll not regret the investigation. And then the third, cli the third climax, which actually is the first the first to come in the oratorio takes place in the first part which is celebrating the incarnation of the Son of God to be the Messiah and it's a, it's a chorus <coughs> excuse me, which starts very quiet with the words for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder you recognize the words they come from Isaiah the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called and as the uh, choir sings and his name shall be called there's a marked crescendo and uh, you move within a couple of, uh, couple of measures from uh, pianissimo to fortissimo and when the choir gets to the name they are to belt it out just as hard as they can his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. They do it, they do it four times. 
And as you can see, I'm a bit choked up in telling you about this. The chorus has the same effect on me as it did on Sir Edward Elgar, who regularly attended the Three Choirs Festival in, uh, in, in England, uh, where year by year Messiah was performed. For, for Messiah, he always uh, booked himself a seat behind a pillar. Because he said, when they get to that great shout, it makes me cry like a cow. And frankly, I understand that very well, because that's what it does to me too. It's a tremendous thing. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. His name. Now, in Scripture, a name is not just a label. Like, for instance, Packer is my label. It probably was a name which actually said something about one of my ancestors. I would imagine that what it was announcing about him was that he was a backpacker who took things round from door to door in medieval villages. Seldom. But when you hear of J.I. Packer, you think of the name as just a label. You don't think of it as a revelation. In Scripture, however, God-given names are always revelations. Revelations of the place, the role, the character, the ministry of the person who bears the name. And so it is here. And if you look at the name which the prophet, prompted by God, declares as the name which the child to be born to save us will carry, you realize that the name is answering two questions. It's answering the question, how will he behave? What sort of a ministry is he going to have? What sort of things is he going to do? And that question is answered by the statement that he's going to be counselor. He's going to be a father. He's going to be a peace-bringer. He's going to bring all those forms of light and joy into human lives. But the name is also answering a different question. How does he, the one who's going to do all this, exist? And that question is answered when the name proclaims, He is God. He exists as God. He's not a creature. He is the Lord. He is mighty. He's not weak and limited like the rest of us. He is the mighty God. He is everlasting. The everlasting Father. That's how he exists. And that's how it is that his ministry can be, and indeed is, as we now know, unlimited. And he lives on his throne still to prove himself. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, to all those who turn to him in any situation, in any place, in any trouble, whether in Western Europe or in California when your daughter has just been knocked down by a car. And I, I have gone round the houses, as it were, in presenting this thought to you, 
because I now want to take you to the book of Exodus which is like Messiah Handel's Messiah in having three climaxes and two of them not like Messiah in which uh, what I'm going to say is true of only one but two of the climaxes in the book Exodus have to do with the revelation of the name of God and this is what I want you to see God reveals himself as the great God who is good the good God who is great the third climax in Exodus is the story of how the Israelites did get across the Red Sea and the, the Egyptians pursuing them were inundated and drowned and on the far side delivered from bondage at last Moses and the people praised God it's all in Exodus 14 and 15 read it and, in, and delight in it at your leisure but the two climaxes to which I want to refer you now are in chapters 3 and 34 and without more ado I refer you to those chapters and we will see God revealing his glorious name to his servant Moses and I am sure that when Moses wrote the book Exodus as I believe he did he meant us to focus on these two climaxes which had been climactic in experience for him and ought to be climactic in experience for all God's people and I'm sure Moses wanted it so to be and he tells the story in a vivid and dramatic way which is calculated to make it so and I just want to walk you quickly through the two stories and show you what is revealed of the name of our God so here we are at the beginning of Exodus chapter 3 and what do we find Moses refugee as he is fugitive from Egypt is feeding the sheep of his father-in-law out in the desert and he sees a strange sight there's a bush burning and it burns and burns and burns and it's still there I know that historically the churches, the Presbyterian churches in particular, have taken this picture of the burning bush as a picture of the church which is put under pressure again and again and again and is still there. As I was hearing in this same lunch just before coming into this meeting, that indeed the church of God in Eastern Europe is still there after nearly half a century of Marxist endeavor to, to stamp it out but it's still there it is as Theodore Beza Calvin's successor once said in a marvelous word which is worth memorizing and rejoicing in once a week for the rest of your life uh, Beza was talking to the king of France who had threatened a persecution which in due course came but Beza said to the king of France may it please you sire to remember the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers and in Eastern Europe and in China we've seen that prove true yet again but now that isn't actually the first meaning the basic meaning the meaning for Moses of that theophany of the burning bush before ever it's to be taken as a picture of the church it was meant to be understood as 
an emblem, a picture, a sign, a presentation of God, God himself, exerting endless energy, and still there, with as much energy to exert tomorrow as he had yesterday. That's what the burning bush is proclaiming. Moses draws near to see what it is, and God speaks to him out of the bush and says, uh, Moses, he calls him by name. God always calls people by name. His word individualizes. And you and I know that from our own experience. Moses learned it too. Moses, said God, and Moses said, here I am. And God told him, be reverent, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. Your God has drawn near you to speak to you. And Moses understood and hid his face, we're told, because he was afraid to look at God, as well he might be. And God spoke, and in speaking to Moses, revealed himself in three ways. First, as communicator showing himself to Moses, talking to Moses, explaining himself to Moses, explaining quite specifically that he purposed to bring his people out of Egypt. This is the goodness of God in grace and love. He's going to save his people from captivity, and he wants Moses to go and be his human agent in the enterprise. Moses is scared stiff, but he need not have been. And as he came to understand the greatness of his good God, which he did come to understand in due course, his fear left him, and he went with God and knew he was on the victory side. But I'm running ahead. He explained himself to Moses. He appears then as a communicator. And he still is a communicator, and Scripture is his word, and he still explains himself to us from what he's written that's the first thing I wanted us to see. And the second thing that appears as God talks to Moses at the bush is that he is a covenanter. The God who communicates is a God who enters into covenant with men. God says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Uh, that's verse 6. And it's again presented there actually in verse 15. If you've got your Bible open, you can see it. And when God says, I am the God of someone, that's covenant language. And covenant means what it means when he and she covenant together in marriage. It means total self-giving. A relationship of love in which God says to those whose God he becomes, I am yours, your God, with all my powers, all my resources, all my goodness, pledge to you to sustain you and to care for you and to enrich you and to love you. I am your God. God reveals himself here as a covenanter, and that is marvelous. And the third way in which God is revealing himself here to Moses, the third element in this momentous disclosure of God, is that he declares himself to be the controller, the controller of all that happens in his world. 
And if you look on to verses 13 through 17, you see God declaring his name, actually using that word now, declaring his name to Moses in a way which proclaims him as the great controller. Let, let, let me read it to you and you'll see. Moses has asked God, this is verse 13, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Or, I am what I am. Or, I will be what I will be. The Hebrew formula expresses all those thoughts together. What's it telling us? It's telling us that God, who is self-sustaining, as the emblem of the bush showed, God, who draws energy endlessly from himself and is always there, never running out of steam, never in any way diminished, always God the Almighty as he was at the beginning, this same God is also the self-determining God. He decides what he will do. He decides what he will be. He is his own Lord and Master. He determines his own way. He will be what he will be. He is the sovereign God when one talks about the sovereignty of God, this is what one, ought to be, what one ought to be thinking, what one ought to be realizing. God determines his own way. And he tells Moses, the way that I've determined now is a way of mercy. I'm going to save my people from Egypt. And I am the great God, the self-sustaining, self-determining God. I can carry through what I've planned to do. Go and tell them, I am. I exist in my own right. I exist by my own power. I exist as the one who determines his own way. Go and tell them that I am. The God who is I am in that sense has sent you to them. And let that information raise their faith and their hope that indeed they can be led out of Egypt, delivered from captivity, brought safely to the promised land. God can do it. God has the resources. In this same luncheon, which I was sharing in before coming to this meeting, meeting we were talking about the fact that there's no limit to what God can do to revive and renew and extend his work in Eastern Europe now that in his sovereignty the days of Marxist domination are over. And that's right. And we should never set limits to what God can do. And we should always be men and women of boundless hope. For our God is the sovereign God who determines his own way and whose resources are unlimited. Well, this was what Moses was meant to learn from the first revelation of God's name. The name Yahweh, or Jehovah, as we say it. Um, that's the name that's being explained 
when God says I am what I am and I will be what I will be and that was the covenant name of God amongst his people from that time onwards God meant it to be so his name is Yahweh and when you say Yahweh you are meant to be thinking of all these truths that were made known at the bush that God is a communicator, a covenanter, and a controller of his world. That God is the sovereign Lord. And he exists as the sovereign Lord in a way which sets him apart from us. Our existence is dependent. We wouldn't exist one moment, not this moment, if our God were not upholding us in being. But God needs no one to uphold him in being. He is the sovereign Lord. He exists in his own right. He is self-sustaining. He is God unlimited. He is God independent. Well, that's the first revelation of the name of God. And it's a revelation which focuses on his greatness. You can see that. The greatness of the God who is good to Israel. But now if you look on to chapter 34 of Exodus and come to actually the final climax, the third climactic passage in this book, you have another revelation from God of the meaning of his name Yahweh and here the emphasis is reversed. The emphasis here is on the goodness of the God who is great among his own people. Exodus 3 focuses on the greatness of the God who is good to his people. Exodus 34 on the goodness of the God who is great among his people. Here again there's a story that we need to remind ourselves of. This revelation comes after the ruinous business of the golden calf. Do you remember? It was a scandal and it was a shame it was a horror and it was a disaster and Moses has been agonizing in intercession with God who has threatened to abandon the people for their idolatry but Moses intercession has prevailed and God has told Moses no you have prayed and I have heard your prayer and I'm not going to cast off my people after all then Moses, exalted, I suppose, by the knowledge that his intercession has succeeded and prompted by the heart for God that he's been developing over the years, says to God, this is back in chapter 33 and verse 18, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord I will proclaim my name in your presence you won't see my face he says those words are there in verse 20 if you look but I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim my name that is I will proclaim the meaning of my name I will proclaim the truth which you should have in your heart 
and your thoughts whenever you use my name. Hitherto, because of the revelation, in virtue of the revelation of Exodus 3, you have been learning when you speak of me by name, when you call on your God, Jehovah, you've been learning to remember that he is great. Now, says God, I'll make my goodness pass before you, and you shall learn the further lesson of remembering how good this great God is. And so it happens. The story is there in chapter 34. God, we are told, puts Moses in the cleft of the rock, and passes in front of Moses proclaiming and if you look at verse 6 of chapter 34 you'll see this he passes in front of Moses proclaiming his name uh, that's the last words actually of verse 5 glance back to verse 5 and you see that the Lord stood there with him and proclaimed his name the Lord Yahweh he passed in front of Moses proclaiming this the Lord, the Lord Yahweh the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love for thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Though he does not leave the guilty unpunished, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Don't be stumbled by that detail of God's proclamation. God assumes that the children will do what children so regularly do, walk in their parents' ways. And the reason why God speaks this way is because he wants Moses to relay to the people what he said and solemnly to warn folk that if they, as parents, sin, they may expect to see the bitter fruit of what they've done coming out in the sin and then the sorrow of their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren all the generations that they can reasonably expect to see and the reason why God wants that said to people is as a solemn warning against lapsing into sin anymore as they did in this matter of the golden calf there were children in the camp watching them in their orgy round the golden calf we need to remember that God doesn't want to see anything of that sort happening among his people again so he stresses that there is divine judgment which works through in family situations if the parents allow themselves to set their children a bad example by sin adult sin of this kind well, what I want you to see is that here is God proclaiming the glory of his moral character. Here is God announcing the goodness in which his greatness is expressed, just as previously he had announced the greatness by which his mercy is expressed. And this is the meaning of the name of God. The focus of this whole message is on the meaning of the name of God as a proclamation of greatness and goodness together. That's the truth about our glorious triune God that I want you to see. I want you to understand, friends, 
that you and I need constantly to be reminded of the greatness and the goodness of our God because we live in an age of God shrinking and because in fact appreciation of the goodness and greatness of God together is the high road to the recovery of spiritual health in a generation in which God has been shrunk in people's minds in other words I'm I'm, I'm unfolding this line of thought to you friends for therapy this is the therapy that we need in these days I spoke of God shrinking you may have wondered what I was talking about well without going into the details which you haven't time to do let me tell you that in the days when light shone in Europe after centuries of darkness the days I mean of the reformation from which came that magnificent hymn that we were singing before I began to speak one of the things that came back into the minds of God's people loud and clear, strong and vivid was the truth of the sovereign grace of God the sovereignty of the God who is gracious the graciousness of the God who is sovereign he is gracious for he justifies sinners he is sovereign for he renews hearts and in his prevenient mercy and love brings to faith dead souls that is sovereignty expressing itself in grace they understood this in the 16th century and this really is why the reformation was such a power in western Europe this knowledge I won't say was intoxicating for that word carries the wrong uh, associations but it thrilled folk to their, to their marrow and it gave them strength beyond anything merely human but alas Satan the enemy of all God's truth and all God's work of mercy uh, made a dead set at the truth of God's sovereign grace and began to chip away at it and dissolve it away so that as time went on it had less and less hold on the minds and hearts of people by the end of the 17th century in the churches of the reformation nearly everybody at practical level believed in a form of justification by works it's very bad news to have to relay but that's how it was and at the turn of the 18th and 19th centuries the top philosopher of Europe Immanuel Kant laid it down as a philosophical axiom which no educated person could possibly question that God who has already been dethroned dethroned from the sovereignty of his grace as the reformers understood it this God is dumb he doesn't speak whatever else the Bible is it isn't his word and people alas believed what Kant said and followed Kant's lead and so the truth about the greatness of God was further chipped away for people ceased to take seriously what the Bible said about it and so we get and I'm jumping now over nearly a couple of centuries we get to the modern mindset according to which God is 
what I think he is and no more people do still invent God for themselves just as the idolaters of Bible times used to do God is what I think he is my idea of God is thus and so and I live by my idea of God rather than by anything different that is taught in the scriptures God is limited to what people think he is and his sovereignty is rarely acknowledged as what the Bible declares it is people nowadays think of a God who is relatively impotent he isn't Lord in his own world he's struggling with the mechanics of his world trying to control it so that uh, cruelty and unlove and misery and grief no longer are part of life in this world but he's not omnipotent so he can't do it and so these evils remain and they are proof that God after all is not on the throne that's the modern idea and when uh, the Jewish teacher Rabbi Kushner writes a book under the title when bad things happen to good people assuming that there are good people and teaching that the problem lies in the fact that God is not able to control the bad things that happen his book becomes a bestseller and is bought by the million that's where we are today and it would be surprising friends if you and I were never infected by the intellectual atmosphere that we breathe so as to become inadequate in our thinking about God and settle for a lesser idea of his greatness and his goodness than scripture sets before us we belong to a generation of God shrinkers we have these centuries of God shrinking behind us it's a bad legacy and we need very deliberately to challenge it as it infects our own minds and then I said exalting God once we can learn to do it making God great in our thoughts and in our words and praising him for his greatness in our hearts and in our songs too this is the healthiest habit spiritually speaking that any of us can ever form I said we need this therapy I'm now saying this is the therapy that we need I am begging you to get into the Psalms in the way that by the grace of God over the years I um, buttoned up Brit though I was by nature have been enabled to get a little way anyway into the Psalms where God is exalted with exuberance and praised with abandonment of joy in a way which demonstrates marvelous spiritual health on the part of the psalmists and is there as a model for all of us you know how in these days we're very concerned about uh, physical self-culture um, physical fitness and uh, Jane Fonda and people like that are heroines of our time uh, teaching us the way of bodily health well uh, 
As Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, bodily health does profit a little, but spiritual health profits a great deal more. And uh, if you respect Jane Fonda for teaching a way of physical health and fitness, I beg you, friends, learn to respect David and the other psalmists a great deal more, for they are proclaiming to us and modeling for us the way of spiritual health. Absolutely uninhibited praise. Absolutely unrestrained adoration. Exalting God. Proclaiming Him as great. Celebrating the fact that whereas I am small and poor and needy, God is great and does wonderful things. And He is my God. So I'm safe and I'm blessed in His hand. Celebrating the fact that I am what I am by his grace. And I am always in his hands. Though he is never in my pocket. But I am in his hands for good. Because this great God, this God of unlimited power and wisdom, is also the God of unlimited love and mercy to those who trust him. Compassionate merciful, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, as he told Moses back in the days of Exodus 34. I call you, friends, to learn the psalmist's way of worship, exalting God every day of your life. How much worship is there in your daily pattern of prayer? How much exalting of God do you do? Now, they call me a Calvinist. And so you wouldn't expect me to be all that positive towards some of the emphases of the people who call themselves charismatics. But one point I take very joyfully from the charismatics, and I beg you to take it too. They do understand the primacy of praise. And that's a lesson that we all of us need to learn. And I believe that one of the reasons why they're in the world today is because God wants us in humility to learn this lesson from them. They've been sent to teach it. Learn afresh the lesson which the psalmists understood so well, the primacy of praise. You say, is this realistic? I assure you, friends, it is realistic and I say this not simply because by the grace of God it's been happening to me over the years and am I thankful. I say it's realistic because there are in Scripture directives which will make it, realistic, make it reality for all of us. Think of Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 where Paul says, um, if there's any uh, goodness... If there's any excellence, if there's anything that's true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable, if there's anything praiseworthy, of course there is, God and his own doings uh, are, fit all those descriptions. If there are such things, says Paul, think about them. He wouldn't tell us what to think about if it weren't possible for us to control our own th 
thoughts to a much greater extent than I believe most of us do. He wouldn't say it if it wasn't possible for us to direct our thoughts in a much more purposeful way than I think that many of us do. When you sit in front of the television, well, it's the television that directs your thoughts. When you're reading the daily paper, it's the same. When you're in a conversation where someone else is leading the discussion, same story yet once more. Your thoughts are being led by someone else or some other influence, some other force. But it should not be beyond the wit and wisdom of any of us to make sure that each day we spend some time alone or in the company of others who see things the way that we do so that we deliberately direct our thoughts to the great things of God and voice our thoughts in praise, prayer, song, adoration. We think of these things and then we worship as the psalmists do. Come, let's sing to the Lord, says the psalmist. Let's exalt his name together. We need more of that in our Christian lives and in our Christian churches. Time's gone. I can't take it further. Let me sign off by reading yet again from the Psalms, my spiritual home as they now are. This is Psalm 95. Come, says the psalmist, let's sing for joy to the Lord. Let's shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. And those mighty works demonstrate the greatness of his power. That's why they're mentioned here. Come, let's bow down in worship. Let's kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, pasture, the flock under his care. I've just written a book which was on sale at the beginning of this conference. It's a book about the Puritans. I'm told that nearly all the copies have gone. And of course, since I have a royalty agreement with my publisher, I cannot be other than glad about that. But it, it's a book about the Puritans as spiritual giants. And in England, the edition of it is going to be called Among God's Giants. And the purpose of the book is to try and help us move from our spiritual pygmyhood, which is the way that I diagnose us. We're just small-scale Christians. That's our problem. And the book is written in hope of helping folk forward from spiritual pygmyhood to giant size. Christians, such as the world needs to see. What's the secret? Well, there's a number of secrets, there's a number of aspects of uh, discipline and devotion with which the book tries to deal in pointing to the way in which the Puritans themselves entered into these things. But what I'm talking to you about this afternoon is, I believe, the deepest, most fundamental, and most significant of all the disciplines all the means of growth, all the forms of therapy that we pygmy Christians need 
in order to become giant believers with strength of the kind that the Puritans had and, and were able to display, which, which I'll be talking about a bit tomorrow, let me say that as a one-sentence trailer. But, as I said, this is therapeutic discipline number one, exalting God in praise. If you come along with me in what I've said so far, let my last word in this talk be echoed by you as you sit there. Let it be a shout of praise. I am going to shout hallelujah. Will you shout hallelujah with me? One, two, three. Hallelujah! Amen.